Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So, we're in this article, Silent Theology, The Silent Theology of Islamic Art. And we left off on this section called The Two Streams of Islamic Art. The Two Streams of Islamic Art. Um, so, we'll begin. Bismillah. قال المؤلف حفظه الله تعالى ونفعنا الله وياه بعلومه في الدارين أمين. The two streams of Islamic art. Beauty is found in two things: in a verse and in a tent of skin. This is Amir Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi, رضي الله تعالى عنه ورحمه الله, the great freedom fighter and Sheikh, by the way. Similar to. Uh, Imam Shamil who was a sheikh and a freedom fighter and also similar to Omar Mukhtar While the Islamic arts are many and diverse they can be roughly categorized into two domains adab and ambiance that is the arts of language and those that create the environment in which people live such as dress, architecture, urban design, and perfume. In pre-colonial times, both of these domains were nearly ubiquitous. Ubiquitous, They were part of the education of not only Islamic scholars, but all Muslims. Virtually all scholars studied, quoted, and wrote poetry. Many were masters of geometry. Some were architects, while others, such as Al-Farabi and Emir Khusro, were master musicians. Even those scholars who were not accomplished artists were nurtured by the arts of adab, which they studied, and the arts of ambiance that marked the institutions of their education. Some of the finest masterpieces of Islamic architecture are madrasas, such as the, the Bu'inaniya of Fas or Ulugh Beg in Samarqand, because it was understood that architecture can support and nourish the soul kindle the intellect, and nurture all the other Islamic sciences. Moreover, the arts of adab and ambiance were not limited to mosques, madrasas, and palaces, but determined the structure and form of the cities and homes in which Muslims lived, not to mention the utensils and tools they used, the clothes they wore, and the melodies, poetry, and idioms that filled their hearts and flowed from their tongues. As Ananda Kumaraswamy notes, in traditional societies, the artist was not a special kind of man, but every man a special kind of artist. Edib is a word that is notoriously difficult to translate into English, meaning at once custom, culture, etiquette, morals, courtesy, decorum, and civilized comportment, as well as literature. It means all of those things. So this is why, you know, there's words, we kind of repeat them, and we translate them, it's better to eventually stop translating them, you know. Um, if, if I don't translate words, it's not because I'm trying to uh, exclude somebody or make someone feel left out. It's probably because I've translated it many times before or because that tension that comes as a result of not understanding what a word, word means can sometimes be useful for us in our journey to learn the meanings of words. Uh, and adab is, as mentioned here, a difficult one to translate. So custom, culture, etiquette, morals, courtesy, decorum, and civilized comportment, as well as literature. It means all of those things. 
To have adab is to be well-read and educated, to have good manners, to be cultured or refined, and to have the wisdom to give everything and everyone their due rights. The literature of adab is so named because it is designed to cultivate adab in its readers. Studying Islamic literature in the traditional fashion shapes and refines one's soul, intelligence, behavior, and speech according to the prophetic norm of elegance and eloquence. So this is not just an issue of, uh, you know, being well-read, but it's about how does one's relationship with this body of literature affect their own personal refinement uh, if in the various areas of their life. The Prophet's wife, Aisha, called the Prophet وسلم, the Qur'an walking on earth, and the arts of adab nurture the creation of such character. Virtually all works... Uh, where did I, I lost it Virtually all works of Islamic literature are In one way or another Commentaries on the Quran Even the profane poetry of Abu Nuwas Or Al-Mutanabbi Bears the imprint of the revelation In its language, images, idioms and rhythms The sophisticated bells letters Of Al-Jahid and Hariri Nidami and Sa'di Sharpen not only the linguistic But also the intellectual and moral faculties Of their readers the philosophical allegories of the Brethren of Purity, Ibn Sina, Suhrawardi, and Ibn Tufail draw on Quranic narratives and concepts while integrating and inspiring the imagination and the intellect. The influence of the Quran is even more evident in the more sacred works of Adab, such as Jalal al-Din Rumi's Mathnawi, Al-Atar's Mantiq al-Tayr, Ibn Atar al-Az Hikam, and the poetry of Al-Busiri, Hafid ibn Al-Farid, Yunus Amri, Amir Khusro, Hamza Fansuri, Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, Sheikh Ibrahim Niyas, uh, and many others whose meanings, uh, structures, styles, and even sounds closely mirror those of the Qur'an. Uh, one of these, if those of you who are Netflix users, I, and I use that term intentionally, um, not to say that I'm not, but Netflix users um, might recognize the name Yunus Emre. Yunus Emre. That's on. That's a series that's on Netflix. It's a Turkish. There's a Turkish uh, drama, I guess you can call it, on his life. I liked it. I thought it was very good. I don't think we finished it, but um, thought there was some really cool stuff in there. Mashallah. Um, these works of adab are like lagoons that open onto the ocean of the Qur'an Which in turn opens onto the divine reality Works of adab bring us closer to the Qur'an and bring the Qur'an closer to us They train us to read and interpret verses that have multiple levels of meaning To read verses and stories from multiple perspectives And to dive into their depths for pearls of meaning They teach us how to read and live the Qur'an and sunnah In short, they cultivate adab so these works, they're not just important works. They're important works because they are kind of like the peak of their... How should I say? They're everything in Islamic civilization that was meaningful is from the ocean of the Qur'an because that's the source of Islamic civilization. And so when you have really profound literature, 
it's not just that it's really beautiful or that it's very interesting or whatever. It's that in order for it to be really profound and really beautiful and be part of the Islamic civilization means that in some way it's a reflection of the Qur'an. And I believe someone said that to me one time about Rumi. Uh, that They say that Rumi's Mathanawi is basically a commentary on the Qur'an. Not like a traditional one, so to speak, but it's a type of commentary on the Qur'an. And, um, and so it, it deserves that kind of respect. And it opens up those kind of doors. Which is important because for the common person... Um, who's not going to be like super scholarly or whatever, they can still respect the poetry. They can still appreciate the art. And in their being able to appreciate the art, the doors of deeper understanding are being then opened to them. Right? The doors of deeper understanding are being opened to them. On top of that, um, and this is mentioned, I don't recall where, but it was in, there was, um, I forget what book that was, but anyways, there's a conversation about the schooling system in India before the British came, and how there were these schooling systems that were very well developed and produced very scholarly people, and then the British came in and replaced them with their little colonial school system that was meant to basically make slaves, and um, didn't produce the kind of scholars that the traditional systems produced. But also what they did was uh, they cut off generations of people from their ancestors and from their elders. Because it had been the case that maybe for centuries people will study Rumi. So the grade school student can study Rumi and the high school student can study Rumi. I mean, they didn't have the same categorization. But the, the college level student can study Rumi. And the grandparent will have studied Rumi. And the parent will have studied Rumi. And so there's a connection in that. You know, this kind of like, we studied the same literature. And then that bridges the gaps between the generations. Whereas when the school systems are completely um, disjointed, then uh, it breaks that relationship between those generations. It kind of makes me think of even some of the ways that the curriculums change here. I mean, the way that math is taught now is different than the way that we learn math and um, you know for better or for worse but the point is that it creates in a, in a space where there could be a continuation continuation from generation to generation it creates a break Mashi, throughout Islamic history most Muslims learned metaphysics cosmology and ethics through these poems and works of literature to paraphrase a South Asian Muslim Nawab's lament we lost our culture and the living reality of our religion when we stopped studying Gulistan of Saadi. So again, this idea of what did you study? And I, I think that this is something that's uh, not really thought about enough in uh, for Western Muslims. You know, we, we, we go through an entirely Western education model and then we send our children to secular universities and they come out afterwards and their heads are all over the place and nobody can understand why their heads are so messed up but their heads are so messed up because like the stuff they were studying didn't have anything to do with who they are and so a new worldview is cultivated uh, a new worldview is cultivated 
a new approach to knowledge is built, a new perspective on knowledge is built that's not necessarily native to our tradition. Um, so it's not just like they didn't study Quran. We we have this very strange, um, like Islamic education to us sometimes is just, can you teach my kids to read Quran? I mean, alhamdulillah, of course, everyone should learn how to read the Quran, but like that's Islamic education. That's, that's all we're talking about here. Um, it's all our civilization produced is some people who can learn some Arabic letters, which is, you know, relatively easy actually. Um, not saying to master recitation of the Quran is easy, but to learn how to read Arabic is relatively easy. I mean, it's not. Uh, it follows very simple rules that don't break, so it's it's not that hard actually to do um, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I hope that uh, there's more to it than that. Um, so he's saying that the, things were the the content the continuity of these things was broken, and actually. Um, the same author, now that I'm thinking about it, on canons and canons. Yeah, same author has another article called Of Canons and Canons, The Promise and Perils of Postcolonial Education. So if you want to read more, you can go ahead and read more there, inshallah. I don't know if we're going to get to that one. Our grandmothers and grandfathers and the former generations of Muslims learned how to realize, live, and put into practice the Qur'an and Sunnah in large part through the poems and works of the literature they memorized, studied, and even if they could not read or write. Even if they could not read or write. The words of the 8th century, 2nd century Hijri scholar and Muhaddith ibn Mubarak seem even more true today. We are more in need of acquiring adab than of learning hadith. Than of learning hadith. The traditional madrasa combines, and this is, you know, something that's kind of might be shocking for some people to uh, to hear. Ibn Mubarak also, you know, just to give some context to this, as it's mentioned here, he was a muhaddith. He was a muhaddith, and he is also the person that said something very, very famous, which is al-isnadu min al-din. You know, the isnad, the chain of narration, is from the deen. So he's someone who cared deeply about hadith, without a doubt. And yet he's saying we're more in need of adab. Why would that be the case? The basic answer to this is that in learning the adab, we learn the essence. We learn kind of like the paradigm. And so whatever hadith we add in afterwards, it falls in the right place. But when we don't have that structure that we're working from, then we can add all the hadith, but we get the adab wrong, so they go in the wrong place. And I, I think, you know, that one should be um, clear enough to understand for anyone who's kind of just like watching things and sees people and the way they deal with things and understand things and the development of trends in our community and so on and so forth, you can see this issue uh, very, very clearly. Um, where do those of us who are converts who do not have Muslim family, uh, family linked to these traditional Muslim societies fall in this picture? Um,
Well, ideally, you know, places where Muslims went and stayed for some sort of time, languages that were spoken by Muslims for some sort of time, will eventually produce adab of this kind of quality. Uh, we're not quite there yet in English. Inshallah, we will be one day. Um, but hopefully there will one day be classics, so to speak, on Islam in English. And then those will be the same classics that, you know, even if a person converts, they can still have access to those classics, right? They can, lead, they can read those, they can study those. Um, and um, they can be part of that. And of course we can, we can study the classics of, of uh, other languages because many of these have been translated. Um, but you know, overall, this is going. This is an issue that's under negotiation in many senses. Like, um, what does it mean to be? Because ideally, your adab, the adab, it draws deeply from the Quran, from the Sunnah, but it's also uh, it is culturally relevant. So, what does that look like in a in, in an American context? <coughs> Doesn't seem like we're quite there yet, but inshallah we'll work through it. The traditional madrasa combines the learning of adab with the beautiful arts of ambiance. Whether in the elaborate and ornate tessellation of the Ben Yusuf madrasa of Marrakesh, or under the simple shade of a baobab tree in the Sahid, uh, surrounded by God's artwork of nature, Islamic learning traditionally takes place in a beautiful ambiance. This is significant and intentional as one's surroundings have a profound impact on one's thoughts. Contemplating the twin rosettes stars on a Moroccan door helped me grasp the relationship between the divine essence and names and their manifestations in the cosmos and the human soul. And it was while gazing at the tiles in the Bu Inaniya Madrasa in Fes that I realized the meaning of the metaphor describing God as a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Uh, you'd have to try that. The most ubiquitous and important art that creates an Islamic ambiance is the recitation of the Quran, often underlooked, uh, overlooked, I should say, and not what I was trying to undermine in any way earlier. This is the f first and highest form of Islamic art from which all others are derived. The precise art of tajweed and the science of, muqa of maqams, um, uh, the musical modes in which the Qur'an is recited, bring out the beauty and geometry of the Qur'anic revelation as it was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ. I think we touched about on this a little bit last time. Um, in reciting the Qur'an, we participate in the divine act of revelation and the prophetic art act of reception, both of which have a profoundly transformative effect on our souls. The sound of Qur'anic recitation is an integral part of the soundscape of any Islamic city or town, and is nearly always arrestingly beautiful. This is significant because in traditional Islamic civilization, truth, of which the Qur'an is the highest example, is always accompanied by beauty. In fact, beauty is a criterion of the authentically Islamic. Um, this is a good rule. You know, this is a good rule. 
the Prophet was incredibly beautiful and elegant. And unfortunately, so much of what gets passed off as Islamic is really quite ugly. And I'm speaking particularly here uh, in the realm of behavior. There's a lot of really ugly behavior that gets passed off as being Islamic. And yes, God is beautiful and He loves that which is beautiful and He loves beauty. Uh, Subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is nothing Islamic that is not beautiful. This axiom governs every other traditional art of ambiance, such as calligraphy, architecture, and geometric design, music, and even dress, food, and perfume. As music plays such a prominent role in contemporary Western culture, it is important to examine music as an Islamic art more closely. So he's going to spend some time on music. God forbid. We're going to talk about music. The hawla wa la illa billah. You know what's funny is that I was thinking the other day that a lot of people in my generation, we suffered certain types of trauma when it comes to uh, Muslim community discourse. And um, I've been thinking about something recently, which is that for a lot of young people that are coming up now, I don't think they have the same traumas. So like, you know, music, music was like a big, big deal conversation when when I was younger um, I don't really get the impression that that's the case anymore like my time in MSAs and stuff like it's pretty much given everyone's going to do music and uh, there might be a few like people who hold out but they're they're the minority and they're not really vocal in any sort of way whereas this was like a big issue you know someone someone listening to music was like Man, you write them off, you know. So it was horrible. Anyways, just a reflection on how we're getting old. <sighs> Things are changing. Issues are changing. We have to keep up. Many who know little about music or Islam confidently proclaim that there is no such thing as Islamic music. Due to, the due to the lack of consensus about the status of music in Islamic law. First, it is important to distinguish the English term music from the Arabic musiqa. Although both are derived from the same Greek word meaning the art of the muses, they have slightly different meanings and connotations. Whereas a native English speaker would classify the religious chanting of poetry, prayers, the adhan, or the Qur'an as music or musical, these arts would not be considered musiqa which has the connotation of involving instruments and being non-religious. Similarly, the instrumental and vocal music in the English sense that accompanies some Sufi ceremonies is seldom considered musiqa. Rather, it is called sama'a, audition or dhikr. So these are different things we're talking about. Nevertheless, instrumental music, whether musiqa or sama'a, remains controversial in the Islamic legal traditions precisely because of its tremendous power to elevate or debase the soul. Simply compare the, the behavior of an audience at a heavy metal concert with that at a concert of Andalusian music. When criminals or soldiers pump themselves up to commit acts of violence, they seldom listen to the Indian classical music of Ali Akbar Khan. The tra traditional Islamic music has a remarkable power to induce states of remembrance, peace, contentment, joy, courage, harmony, balance, and most especially, 
love and longing for the divine. The Islamic philosophers developed elaborate musical theories based on the principles of Pythagorean harmony to explain and refine pre-existing folk traditions of music. Court musicians produced a refined and refining art that served as the acoustic equivalent and accompaniment of adab, while the Sufi orders developed powerful traditions of spiritual music capable of transporting the soul into the divine presence. Although Islamic music differs widely from culture to culture, it has certain common features related to its Islamic cosmology and emphasis on Tawheed. It typically has a regular rhythm. Rhythm is the imprint of oneness across time often increasing in pace toward the end of the song or concert, before dropping off into silence, which mirrors the acceleration of time as the final hour approaches. It often includes salawat or Qur'anic recitation, and it is characterized by a unity of melodic voices issuing the complex harmonies and multiple voices that characterize the best of Western music due to its emphasis on Tawheed. Hmm. So there might also be uh, um, there might also be a hint here for part of like how to begin thinking about the one question about converts and so on and so forth. So let me read that sentence again. Actually. It might not, but I'll read it again. Uh, before dropping off into silence, it often includes salawat or Quranic recitation, and it is characterized by a unity of melodic voices, eschewing the complex harmonies and multiple voices that characterize the best of Western music due to its emphasis on Tawheed. For the skilled musician in an Islamic tradition, playing music is like playing with one's instrument, and for the prepared listener, it is like listening to the world wordless praise of the angels and the cosmos. As Sayyid Hussein Nasr notes, Islamic civilization has not preserved and developed several great musical traditions in spite of Islam, but because of it. Uh, yes, to that comment. There's a comment that says, The ugly is transferred and the beauty is removed. This may be intentional, could be due to Orientalism, colonialism, and imperialism. Nevertheless, this doesn't mean to exonerate Muslims. The Muslims have a role to play to bring the beauty. In some cultures, music and art is frowned upon as forbidden. Yes, uh, in, in some cultures today, uh, w one does wonder if that was always the case. Or was this the consequence of certain... Uh, ideological trends and movements and so on in any case it is important to note that music and other traditional Islamic arts not only belong to the past but are contemporary living traditions all of these art forms are dynamic they continually change adapt and create new possibilities all without departing from the fundamental principles of their particular form the very principles that make them Islamic these same principles can be applied to new art forms, such as web and graphic design, photography and cinematography. The cinematic arts are primarily derived from the theater, which was never a major Islamic art as it was in the ancient Greek, Christian, and Hindu civilizations. In fact, Greek works of drama and theater were just about the only works Muslims did not translate into Arabic, perhaps because the Islamic revelation is based more on a presentation of the way things are 
and not on the heroic sacrifice of a god-man, Christianity, or on the myths about personified aspects of the divine, ancient Greek and Hindu traditions, that are repeated in liturgy and passion plays. Hmm. Interesting reflection there. This is an interesting concept to think about. The heroic sacrifice of a God-man, Christianity. Kind of like the way Western media plays out, like heroes and storylines and stuff. Hmm. There's an element of that too and like the story of Abraham as told in the biblical tradition versus the Muslim tradition. The biblical tradition it's very much like Abraham the solitary, you know, has to go down this stuff by himself and he's gonna go slaughter his sacrifice his son on his own and nobody's there to help him and so on. But in the Muslim tradition the story is very much like a work that happens Abraham with his son. Uh, it's more communal. Anyways, uh, the real, the relatively non-mythological character of the Islamic tradition and its emphasis on the unity and omnipotence of the divine precluded dramatic tension within the divine or between human heroes and the divine. However, Persian Shiism developed the drama of Ta'ziyah depict, depicting the events of the Battle of Karbala. And while not a central sacred art, it was nevertheless an important Islamic religious art form. This is probably not unrelated to the fact that Iran has the most developed cinematic tradition of any Muslim country. Although some of Majid Majidi's films come close, I believe a truly Islamic cinematic art has yet to develop. Islamic cinema is not just movies about Islam or Muslims, or cinema made by Muslims, but the very philosophy and techniques of the art must be rooted in the Islamic perspective, much as Bresson's work is rooted in Catholicism, Terence Malik's work is rooted in Heideggerian philosophy and Tarkovsky's work is rooted in his own unique metaphysical vision influenced by Russian Orthodox Christianity uh, you might say this too about certain things like um, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis uh, all of the Islamic arts exist to support the supreme art, the purification of the soul, the cultivation of character, and the remembrance of God. I was sent only to perfect the beauty of character, the Prophet ﷺ said. There is no question of art for art's sake in the Islamic arts because all of them have practical, psychological, and spiritual functions. The Islamic arts are not a luxury. Rather, they serve as essential supports for that art which is the raison d'etre of Islamic law, theology, and indeed the entire Islamic tradition, the realization of the full potential of the human state, and thus the entire cosmos through humanity's role as Khalifa, through the remembrance of God. The neglect of the Islamic arts has severely crippled the Ummah's ability to pursue this highest art, both individually and collectively. So this is an important paragraph. Okay, So what is the whole thing about? The whole thing about is... The whole thing is about uh, the realization of the full potential of the human state. 
the realization of the full potential of the human state. And that is a matter of purification of the soul. That's what all of this goes back to. Not the art, not just the art, but the entirety of the, the whole tradition goes back to the same issue. And that, of course, will show itself in different places and have different consequences, but that is, that is the goal, is to become truly human. And so art is essential to that. Okay, can art heal our souls? Can art heal our souls? I think this is close to the end. Yes, inshallah, we'll finish today. Can art heal our souls? Know, O brother, that the study of sensible geometry leads to, a, to skill in all the practical arts. While the study of intelligible geometry leads to skill in the intellectual arts, because this science is one of the gates through which we move to knowledge of essence of the soul, and that is the root of all knowledge. And beauty will save the world. Dostoevsky. As these epigrams suggest, the Islamic arts are gates through which we can access the deepest truths of the cosmos, the revelation, and ourselves. The neglect of these arts is a terrible blow, not only to our aesthetics, but also to our ethical, intellectual, and spiritual lives. So, this is the, this is the key. The key is that a neglect of the arts, uh, a lack of appreciation for the arts, for beauty, for cultural production, art production, so on and so forth, is not just a matter of making our homes less pretty or our lifestyle less refined. It is a matter of actually uh, our it, it is not only a terrible blow to our aesthetics but also to our ethical, intellectual and spiritual lives because something really fundamental and foundational is missing when that's happening just as our bodies in a sense become what we eat our souls become what we look at, listen to, read and think about when the Islamic arts are rare, unrecognized and underappreciated what then happens to our souls? When the Islamic arts are rare, unrecognized, and underappreciated, what then happens to our souls? They also become atrophied. The loss of the Islamic arts is, a deeply, is also deeply connected with the rise of extreme sectarianism, the atrophy of the imaginal faculty, and the overall difficulty perceiving unity in diversity. In traditional Islamic cosmology and metaphysics, multiplicity and difference govern the outward world of appearances, whereas unity increases the farther one travels inward, into the world of meaning and spirit. Because God is one, as one approaches the Divine Presence, things become more unified. Those without access to this unity are unable to perceive and participate in the harmony, the reflection of unity and multiplicity that links the world of appearances to that of realities. Imagination and the arts are bridges that unite these two worlds. So there's something about recognizing the relationship between unicity and multiplicity that comes from traditional art that also helps us in dealing with differences and recognizing uh, those things that bring us together in spite of the presence of those things that distinguish us from one another. Those with a deep appreciation of Islamic arts can appreciate the barakah of and identify the profound realities represented in the architecture of Al-Muhad, Morocco, 
uh, Mamluk Egypt or Safavid Iran completely irrespective of the official legal school or theology of these dynasties. Moreover, those familiar with the profound principles of Islamic art cannot help but notice these same principles, albeit in a different mode, in the sacred arts of the other revealed religions. Islamic art, like Islam itself, synthesizes and confirms the traditions of sacred arts that came before it. Anyone familiar with the theory and principles of Islamic music cannot help but admire Bach, and those adept in Adib will find much to appreciate in the works of Shakespeare and uh, Sun Tzu, Chung Tzu. Despite the great differences in the way the Muslim composer and these authors applied universal principles. In addition, anyone familiar with Islamic sacred geometry cannot fail to recognize the same principles at work in Buddhist and Hindu mandalas and temples. So here's also a point uh, for those of us who are converts. Is to recognize these similarities. Um, and to appreciate them. And maybe there's a way that they can be incorporated. You know, This is precisely what Muslim scholars and artists have done for generations. Understood, appreciated, and integrated the arts and sciences of other civilizations. There you go. One of the clearest signs of our decline has been the virtual disappearance of these synthetic and creative intellectual and artistic processes. This has also been accompanied by increasing tensions between different Muslim groups and minority communities of other faiths that thrived in Muslim-majority lands for centuries. The Qur'an describes the diversity of humanity as providential and divinely willed in order for us to know one another, and through this knowledge to better know ourselves and our God. As Muslims lose touch with the knowledge of our arts and of our history, of ourselves, of our tradition, and of God, we lose touch with reality and with the ability to recognize the truth and humanity of those who differ with us, differ from us. So this is very, very, very profound. You see, see sometimes people will talk about these things and then everyone's like, well, what about politics? What about power? <coughs> what about social cultural issues? And so on and so forth. They're all interrelated. Don't think that everything's not interrelated. Allah is one. The multiplicity is is is, is uh, a manifestation of the unity, of the unicity. So now we see very clearly how what's what what we're talking about in terms of art, all of a sudden became an issue of politics. Right? Let me read that sentence again. As Muslims lose touch with knowledge of our arts, of our history, of ourselves, of our tradition, and of God, we lose touch with reality and with the ability to recognize the truth and humanity of those who differ from us. Okay, so that's uh, now, you know, it becomes very clear. For Muslims who practice a craft, such as the Islamic arts of calligraphy, poetry, or Quranic recitation, that craft provides them with a model for Islamic spirituality. A craft is an activity that requires continuous practice and improvement over a lifetime, not a cookie-cutter mold into which, either, into which one either fits or does not. If we view the purification of our hearts, the attempt to follow in the Prophet's footsteps, and the quest to know God as a craft or an art form, instead of as an identity, we can understand how different approaches can lead to the same or a similar goal. Thus, I believe the recent epidemic of takfir could be ameliorated by understanding the practice of Islam as an art form instead of focusing on an either-or notion of Muslim identity. This is really, really big. It's not like you're in, you're out. Those are really, like, 
your in your out are really broad things i mean obviously there is a your in your out like if you don't believe in god you can't really be a muslim if you don't believe in the prophet and then you can't be a muslim but um but that doesn't mean like inside of that it's an art like getting to know god getting to know ourselves improving our relationship with him de- dealing with all the things that we deal with in life these this is an art it's not everything has to be dealt with through the lens of law you know all is not lost however discernment whether intellectual or aesthetic is difficult to recover once lost but the Qur'an says, Ask the people of dhikr if you do not know. Those Islamic societies and communities with thriving traditions of Islamic spirituality tend to have thriving artistic traditions, even if they are not economically wealthy, as in West Africa. This is because the practice of Islamic spirituality, being the science of taste, though, refines one's taste, enabling recognition of spiritual truths and realities, Haqqaiq in sensible forms. Similarly, the Islamic arts support and refine the practice of Islamic spirituality. The revival of the arts must be a priority for Muslims worldwide because the arts are vital to the rejuvenation of the Muslim mind and soul. As Plato wrote, The arts shall care for the bodies and souls of your people. While many have attempted to reduce the Islamic tradition to a list of do's and don'ts in the realm of behavior and belief, The Islamic arts serve as a powerful reminder of the more profound realities of the tradition, of Ihsan, and of the purpose of the entire Islamic tradition in the first place, the highest art of bringing the human soul back to its fitrah, which perfectly reflects all of the divine names and qualities, both the Jalal and the Jamal. صلوات الله وسلامه عليه وعلى آله وصحبه ومن تبع سنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم آمين. So that's the end of this article. I think it's a fantastic article. I welcome your contributions, your um, your comments, your feedback, whether that be by uh, chiming in or s- sending a comment. Uh, all is welcome. We love to hear any anything you have about this article. Anthony, are you talking? Yes. Okay, there you go. Um, I actually really appreciated uh, this this article. It kind of reminds me of how, um, yeah, I, I'm going to ask that question about the converts, but you know, even even in the West, historically, um, probably before modernity, you you went through the trivium with education, and you got educated in Latin and probably Hebrew because everyone's Christian and and there were a certain I guess you call them like the Western canon that everyone sort of 
yep. sort of went through um, mm -hmm. weren't considered educated uh, we didn't have I guess ed quote unquote I guess in the western sense if you didn't go through those things and it kind of reminded me of how even I think we, when we talk about the west we usually talk about it in a post kind of post-colonial sense but even in the west and I consider myself a westerner even though like I'm a black American but there's that tradition of, of, I guess what, what, what would have been considered being, uh, I guess quote unquote civilized in culture, and I guess that's kind of loaded because of the racial connotations that that has. Yeah. But I guess what I'm wondering, and I guess what I've struggled with for the many years that I've been a Muslim is, um, you know, I guess if you come from a traditional Muslim background, I guess some of these things are more so laid out for you I guess maybe it's just a matter of becoming reacquainted with them mm -hmm. um, but if you're um, if you're here the social realities are like very different mm -hmm. than back in those societies and this is just what I've read and what I've heard from folks who are connected to those places and so my question these past 15 years has been like how do you construct something like that that's meaningful for the social and historical realities that are that are here and that are sort of evolving as time goes on because part of the one of my big issues is the idea that we can just take something from I don't know the air world the daisy world and just transplant it here it's not gonna work man right but, and so right. you know whether it's in the form of like the, the arts or I don't know like you know like what have you um, and so yeah I guess that's one of the things I've been yeah. struggling with for probably the past decade and a half is like how do we do that what does that look like um, because you know some things I guess it's one thing to be able to appreciate the beauty that might come about from another culture like um, like you know for example like like i'm not big on koalis for example like i'd rather listen to gospel music because <laughs> i'm a black american right um right right but obviously a lot of gospel music is you know, christian based right right uh, same thing i grew up catholic too so like gregorian chants i actually prefer that even over like a lot of like nasheeds because i'm a westerner mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so i guess the question is like and I imagine, like, if you have kids that, you know, they're probably Westerners, too, like, especially if they're born here, which is, you know, it's a reality. So, like, how can we, how do we do this thing such that it's sustainable long term? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the big question, you know. Um, and I think part of the challenge from it is what you said, is that, the modern West is detached from that. I don't know if detached is the best word, but the modern West is different than the pre-modern West, right? Like, like religion was, um, was part of the pre-modern West, whereas the post-modern West is not, it's almost the opposite. And th I think that complicates it even more. Um, <clears throat> but you're, I, I think you're, 
you know, you're on to something there, which is that if it's going to matter, it needs to matter within this context, you know, and it needs to be in a way that can be understood. And, 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 you know, but again, the thing that I keep thinking about is like with these kids now, I don't know if they have like the same, I don't know if they're drinking from the same pool. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> things that we may have considered to be canonical, I'm not sure that they do anymore. And what does how do you how do you navigate through that? Um, and I think also something about what you're saying, and it's making me think as well, which is that like there's only so many canons you can master. You know, like you can't you you. It's the work of a lifetime to be fluent in one, let alone to be fluent in multiple. So a decision has to be made at some point. You know. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud with you. Like, would it be? Would it be on? I mean, I guess my my take on this is, I guess, always been. I guess it should. It should be on us to make the religion meaningful in this particular context and not just assume that we can transplant something from a thousand years ago. Mm. It's going to speak to, I don't know, like your your seven-year-old kid. I forget how old. <laughs> it's just, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, um, yeah. and, and isn't that in and of itself also sort of part of the tradition like it's not just handing stuff down but making stuff sensible to hand down in the first place Mm -hmm. it has to be living yeah otherwise it's like a zombie it's just moving around but it's not alive right it has to be a living tradition yeah subhanallah it's a it's a tall task (laughs) it's a tall task but uh you know but Allah is kidding there's some things like I, I would actually um, like if you have particular gospel songs that you think work for for us, um, like feel free to send them to me, please. I'd like to check yeah, them out because I think part of the challenge here too is that, like for example, I'm a Westerner, but I grew up in a non-religious Western experience, so like that whole world. I'm, of course, like you know the staples. Amazing Grace, you have some sort of familiarity with Hallelujah stuff like that, um, but there's so much more to it, you know. So, like for example, a lot of the songs. So I grew up Catholic, but we were Black Catholic. So a lot of the stuff, a lot of the spirituals are actually like Old Testament, having to do with Moses being let out of, mm. leaving the Israelites out of Egypt because a lot of you know, like the slaves saw themselves as like being under captivity in the same way that the children of Israel were. so right. a lot of the songs that we sang were like based off of that not necessarily like I don't know like the God man I guess which is why one of the reasons why some Christian theologians even say that like the black church is not really they're not really Christian because of the, the theological focus was on like being sort of getting rid of the bondage and not necessarily like worshipping like, like the God man or whatever right so mm. but interesting yeah, so like 
but I, but you know, for myself, it's been a while because I haven't obviously been to church in like 15 years because I'm a Muslim. <laughs> so a lot of those songs I've forgotten, right? Yeah. And a lot of people like in my life that remembered those songs have like passed on. So, um, but but yeah, that's like 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 some of the gospel songs, like I said, are Old Testament based, like with most. So that like 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 that's that's like one that's one area. Another area is actually jazz. Mm-hmm. Because a lot mm-hmm. of the early jazz musicians were associated with this song, right? Right. Um, like there probably is, like even with the stuff that's out there, we could probably put together some sort of like hodgepodge, you know, compilation of things that were like, you. These are the things you need to be familiar with, and let's kind of like build some momentum around that, you know. Um, Yeah. Interesting. I also know of like a, you might even know him, there's a brother up here in the Bay that does graffiti style like calligraphy. Right? So it's like, it's like tagging stuff, but it's mm-hmm. with like, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. Like a kind of a, a cool mixture of, yeah. of like both. I know, a seed. Yeah, his brother's a Mexican convert. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. That's cool. That's good. It's kind of tough. Uh, good, good, good. Faisal, it looks like you want to share something. Yeah. What I was thinking is that I found interesting uh, is that he says at one point that because of the discourse, we fail to see the beauty of the enemy or something in that line you know uh, so uh, and, and, and that goes along uh, the current context you have to be on some camp to be safe you either you have to pick a camp to be so you have to even if you're so you you tend to um throw the baby with the bath water kind of right um, and this 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 challenge always happens in a, in a the, in t- typical political arguments like uh, are you pro are you pro life or are you pro um, pro choice and uh, we you have to be either this way or that way you have no choice to be because that's kind of like a safety net and I think that that has transferred in in the Middle Eastern cultures that you have to pick a side, and because of the tribal nature and the, the way the, the geography has been situated, you have to pick. You cannot go uh, with the Iranian uh, cinema, or you cannot pick the um, uh, you cannot go on the Turkish cinema side. You have to pick one. You know. So I think that in that way they go pick the uh, Bollywood, <laughs> Bollywood kind of uh, system. So it's interesting, but he's bringing out some very uh, thought-provoking ideas on this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. I th- I don't know if this was the sentence that you were referencing, but there's one of them where he said, "We lose touch with reality." And with the ability to recognize the truth and humanity of those who differ from us. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good, mashallah. 
There's another question. It says, unfortunately, I missed the first half of the article. Is the quote-unquote Islamic part of Islamic art the intention of the artist as well as the result of reminding the admirer of God the sacred? Um, I can't recall if there was like a particular passage where he really... I feel like a lot of the article kind of revolves around this idea, but I don't know if it pinpointed in any particular place. But um, as far as I could understand, like the Islamic part of it is for like basically the one who's making it has to be so deeply steeped in the tradition from the theology to the law to the spirituality such that what they produce is truly a reflection of that um um of that essence, you know, that's what makes it Islamic. It's not. It's. It's. Is it a reflection of 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 those of those truths, and those values and those principles, or not? Um, <clears throat> even if the artist is not Muslim, which he kind of hinted at. I think he said that at some point. Uh, like it could. It could be that you have a Muslim civilization. That by by virtue of it being a Muslim civilization, you could have a non-Muslim who is born and raised in it that produces art that is Islamic, um, because they're so much a part of that way, um, even if theologically they might not fully align. So Allah give tawfiq, Allah give tawfiq. Inshallah, we will continue next week. We'll probably do, usually at the end of the year, we take a couple weeks off. Um, people travel and stuff like that. doesn't look like that's going to be happening this year. But nonetheless, we'll probably end up taking a couple weeks off at the end of the end of the year. So we have probably like two sessions left on Sundays. Um, I'm not sure what we'll cover, them, cover in them. But um, Inshallah, we'll figure out something for that. Uh, Wassalamualaikum.